Remember last week we were talking <clears throat> about the apostle, but I came across this little uh, article last week, so I wanted to open up by sharing it with you. It's, it's rather interesting. It's sort of a, a, a mock letter that was written by, they called this, the Jordan Management Consultants, and the letter is addressed to Jesus, son of Joseph, in care of the woodcrafter's carpenter shop of Nazareth. And the letter says this, Dear Sir, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and uh, our vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included with this letter, and you will want to study each of them carefully. As part of our advice and for your guidance, we make some general comments. This is given as a result of staff consultation and comes without any additional fee. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise that you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership that we can see. The two brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. <laughs> James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic-depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, ambitious and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All of the other profiles are self-explanatory. Sincerely yours, the Jordan Management Consultants of Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? And you know what? Companies today would have probably done the very same thing. But the Lord operates in a different way, doesn't he? And I'm glad for that. All right, let's open up in a word of prayer. Father God, we do thank you that you are different from the world. We thank you, Lord, that you are a God of mercy and grace, and you take that which is, is foolishness in the sight of the world, and you use those sheep, those dumb sheep, to do your work so that you might receive the glory. Father, now as we open the word of God, I would pray that your presence, the Holy Spirit, would be among us, that he would be the teacher, that you would guide the words and the thoughts of, our, of my mouth and, and heart, we thank you, Father, as we look at a lesson on persecution, that we can use times of opposition as times of opportunity, and that we might see them also as times of obligation, because those of us who know you are obligated to speak of you. Father, I would pray now that you would help us to center our thoughts on what your word through your spirit has to teach to your people and may you and you alone receive any glory for whatever is accomplished here today. For we do pray, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen. Well, before we go any further, and we are in Lesson number 65, the Ordination Sermon Part 2 in your books, and we'll be looking at primarily Matthew chapter 10 if you want to open up your Bibles and your books. But before we go any further in our look at the Lord's Ordination Sermon to his 12 apostles, I want to take a minute to discuss the three divisions of this sermon the three parts of it. Now, the sermon itself is actually found in Matthew 10, and it starts at verse 5, and it continues all the way through the chapter. So the sermon, which is the fourth recorded sermon in our Life of Christ study, goes from chapter, verse 5 to verse 42. 
Now, if we do not understand the three divisions of this sermon, we're going to be making some of the mistakes that other people have made as they look at this sermon. For example, some people have said, well, a ministry is only to be limited to the house of Israel because look at what the Lord said here to his men. Well, obviously that isn't true. We're not to take these ver- some of these verses to apply to us directly. We know that our ministry for Christ is not just limited to the lost sheep of the house of Israel or Jews. Or, for example, we today do not have the apostolic power and authority to cleanse lepers, to raise the, the dead, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons. We don't have the apostolic power to do those things. And we don't need those signs and wonders today to authenticate our message because what do we have instead? We have the Word of God, which can authenticate our Word and message. You know, if our Word, what we're speaking, doesn't align with this book, then people can know it's not true. If it does align with the book, it's true. We don't need signs and wonders. Those were special apostolic gifts. There are other problems that we would have as well if we did not understand the divisions of the ordination sermon. So as we see in our look this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 16 to 23. As we look at those verses, we hear Jesus talking about a lot of persecution. We'll hear him speaking of being delivered up before councils or courts, religious courts, and receiving scourgings in the synagogues and being brought before governors and kings and even being delivered unto death by one's own family members, being turned into the authorities by your own family. He spoke of persecutions that would take place on a much wider scale even a worldwide scale, by the time you get to the last few verses, verses 20, 21, 22, 23, around there, by the time you get to those verses, he's speaking of worldwide persecution. Well, we know that this did not take place at the time the 12 apostles went out on their first mission venture here, you know, without him. So what we need to see in this sermon is that Jesus, in his omniscience, you know, he can see the end from the beginning because he was God. He was picturing a telescopic view of the time of the first mission of his 12 apostles. You know, as soon as he finishes this ordination sermon, he sends them out. So he's seeing that first venture on through. His eyes see on through down the whole history of the church and even to the time of his second coming. Look, if you will, at verse 23. At the end of verse 23, what does he say? Till the Son of Man become. There he is speaking of his return, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we find then in verses 5 to 15, if you want to make little marks or little lines, sometimes I do that for division in my Bible. I start a little line at verse 5 where the sermon begins, and then I put a little line after the verse... 15. That's the first division. These are his words of commission which were directly spoken to the apostles. And they were for them at that time when they were going out on that first mission venture without him. Now from our perspective where we stand in history, his words were to his past apostolic helpers. That's why I called this part of the outline, if you look up above, under helpers, This was his commission, this part A under the helpers, the commission of the Lord of past, apostolic past helpers. Those words were for his disciples only. He spoke to them of their limited mission at that time to just who? The lost sheep of the house of Israel. That was a temporary mission, which would soon be replaced by the what? Great Commission, when he would tell them at the end in chapter 28 of Matthew that they were to go into all nations. But for this first venture, they were only to go to their own people. And we gave reasons for that in our lesson, last lesson, 64. Even his instructions concerning what they were to take with them on this first mission venture 
you know, no money. They weren't to take any money. They were to count on God to provide for their needs through God's people. They weren't to take any extra clothes. They weren't to take any extra shoes, just their sandals on their feet. They were not to take a scrip, which was a little bag for food. They weren't to take that. And not even a stave or a staff. Even, even those instructions, however, would change. If you look ahead at Luke chapter 22, this would be the, um, the night of, of the Lord's arrest. Right before he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's arrested, he told his men, he said, now, he said, remember on that first venture, I told you to don't, not to take extra clothes and, and money and a script bag for food and not even to take a staff. He says, guess what? Things are changed. Now you go out, you, you take extra clothes. You take with you a script with food. You carry some money with you. And if you don't have a sword, sell one of your garments and go out and get one. So see, even these commissioning statements, um, these first verses here to his apostles, some of those things that he gave, instructions he gave to them were changed later. So they were temporary instructions. So you and I don't look at verses 5 to 15 to get our instructions for how we're to go out into the world. Do you get that? It was for past apostolic-only helpers. All right, then in the verses we're going to look at this morning, this is your second division of the sermon, which goes from verse 16 down to verse 23. If you want to put a little line at the end of verse 23, between 23 and 24, this constitutes... um, the division on our outline, which we are calling his counsel, the Lord's counsel, to abused or persecuted future helpers. He's talking not only to what the apostles themselves would encounter in the future, once he was no longer with them, he had ascended back into heaven, what they would encounter. And we read about a lot of what they encountered in the book of Acts. And we talked about some of it even last week when we looked at how some of those apostles were martyred for their faith. But not only is he talking to to them about, you know, counsel for their persecution, but he goes again all the way down through the corridors of church history, even through to the time of his return. And some of the last verses in this section, for example, verses 21 to 23, will be particularly meaningful for those who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ during the the tribulation period on earth, especially during the last three and a half years before the Lord's second coming, which is known as the Great Tribulation. People will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ when the Antichrist is ruling here on earth. Many people will come to know him. Many, many, many will be martyred for their faith. And these words of Christ in this ordination sermon will have particular application and comforting counsel to people living at that time. And then, Lord willing, next week we're going to look at the last division of this sermon, which uh, constitutes verses 24 through to the end of the chapter, 24 to 42. And we find there that the Lord's words apply to his servants of all ages. Even though there are certainly principles learned for all of us from the entire sermon, we do indeed learn certain principles from it. Yet this third division has special significance for you and I today. So we call it commands to all present helpers. So the three divisions of the sermon are, number one, his commission to apostolic past helpers, verses 5 to 15, then there's his counsel to abused future helpers, verses 16 to 23, what we're going to look at today, and then, Lord willing, next week, his commands to all present helpers, verses 24 to 42. So let's look now at verses 16 to 23, if you'll read, follow along as I read those verses. Matthew 10, starting at verse 16, says, Behold, And whenever the Lord Jesus says, Behold, it means pay special attention. What I'm going to say is important. It's just almost kind of like when he says, Verily, verily, this is another attention getter. He says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. 
But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues, and ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man be come. All right, I guess it's pretty obvious as we looked at those verses that the Lord Jesus had moved into the future. He had instructed his men regarding their ministry in the first verses, regarding their ministry, their message, their, the miracles that he would empower them to perform. He had talked about their means of support as they went out on that first mission without him, how they were to depend on God totally for their supply and God's people. He had spoken to them on the methods that they were to use, you know, where they were to stay and how, when they were to shake the dust off of their feet, etc. But with verse 16, beginning with that word, behold... He begins to talk about a far wider persecution than we know the apostles would suffer on that first tour. He spoke of their testimony before Gentiles, didn't he? Look at verse 18. He spoke of their testimony before Gentiles, but what had he just told them to do? Go only to Jews, the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He spoke of the whole, look at verse 20. He spoke of the Holy Spirit speaking in them. But the Holy Spirit would not be in them until when? Right, the day of Pentecost. And then look at verse 22. He seems to, to speak of a worldwide persecution, being hated by, by who? All men, the whole world, all men. And he spoke about uh, enduring to the end. Now, how could they be hated by all men when they, he had just told them to stay only in Israel? And probably their mission only lasted maybe two weeks. It was a short mission. And then in verse 23, he even spoke, as we've noted already, of the return of the Son of Man, which takes us even where? From where you and I are. That's still even yet future, isn't it? So we know he's moved into the future here. And by the way, it's interesting that we find over in... Um, in uh, in the other accounts, remember in our look at verses 5 to 15, we had parallel accounts in Mark and in Luke. They weren't as complete as what Matthew told us, but Mark, I think it was verse uh, chapter 6 and Luke chapter 9, something like verses 1 to 6, paralleled what the Lord said to his apostles. But both of them end with what is said up to verse 15 in Matthew. They don't, care, they don't have anything further like we just read, verses 16 to 23. They don't have anything about that in, in Mark and Luke. I hope I'm making myself clear. But what is interesting is we find these words the Lord just spoke that I just read to you over in Mark 13 and in Luke 21, both of which are passages that speak about the latter days. The, uh, the uh, part of the Olivet Discourse, which is the greatest prophetic sermon that the Lord Jesus ever preached. And it takes us past even where we are today. So what I'm saying is I have support biblically from the other Gospels that we have moved on into the future. He is giving counsel here for future helpers, future persecuted helpers, meaning laborers out there in the field. It's also interesting that in Lord's later commissioning to his 70 disciples, there is going to be another occasion, and this we'll find in Luke 10 when we get there, when he sends out not just 12 apostles, but he sends out 70 disciples into the mission field 
on a venture of their own. Well, when he gives their commissioning statement to them over in Luke chapter 10, he began the whole sermon by saying, Go your ways, behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. So that's how he began his commission to them. But here in Matthew, we find that that statement about being sent as sheep out in the midst of wolves is a transitional statement. It's a transitional statement between the first two divisions. And just think about this, his words here. Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. That, those words must have really caught his men off guard. I mean, it must have caught, caught his men by surprise because he had just told them that they were going to possess some amazing power. Think about it. He just told them that they were going to be able to do what? Heal people. Had they watched him heal a lot of people so far? Yes. They had been observers of all the miracles that he had performed. They had seen him heal miraculous situations. Handicaps. Remember the paralytic lowered through the roof who couldn't even move? And Jesus said the word. Man's sins were forgiven and he got up and walked. Blind people who could see. He Now they were going to have that kind of power. And he'd seen them, he'd seen, they'd seen him cleanse lepers. Nobody ever had been able to clean a leper before. He had done it, they'd watched, and now he said they were going to have that same kind of power. And what else? He'd, they had seen him raise two people from the dead, at least two recorded situations. Maybe he raised more people from the dead, but we know of two that so far have been recorded. And they watched him raise those people from the dead. And now they were going to have that kind of power? And what else? Cast out demons? Amazing power. And so they might have been thinking, just think of Peter. <laughs> think about Peter alone. And, or think about Simon the Zealot. Or think about the, the two sons of thunder, John and James. What they must have thought. Wow. You know, we're going to be invincible. We're going to be just like him. We go out there in this, on this mission venture. I mean, you know, P Peter would say to Andrew, you know, Andrew, if you, get, if you get stoned to death, guess what I can do? I can raise you back to, from the dead because I got that power now. We're going to be, <clears throat> we're going to be full of Wheaties and, and we're going to go out there and we're going to conquer. Just think, 12, 12 of us, what we can do. Don't you think that's what they were thinking, knowing some of these guys? But now the, the Lord Jesus sort of just ripped the, the rug right out from under them because uh, he says, you know those scattered sheep that I was talking about without a shepherd? You're actually those sheep. You're not, you're not, they thought might have been thinking they were going to be the wolves, the kind wolves, you know, they weren't going to go out there and devour people, <laughs> but they were going to conquer in a nice way. But now he's saying, no, you're the sheep. And I'm sending you out into the midst of wolves. You see, Jesus understood the importance of warning his followers ahead of time of the persecution. He knew how vital it was for him to give godly counsel on how to deal with the persecution that would surely, surely come. And did it come? Oh, yes. We heard about all of them were persecuted, and most of them died martyrs' death, deaths. And many people down through the, the ages of history have died for their faith and surely been persecuted. And the persecution still comes. They say there are more people who have been persecuted and, and martyred for their faith in our generation than at any other time, probably because there are more of us. But many people today are dying for their faith in other parts of the, of the world. And it may come to that point here, too, perhaps sooner than we realize. And then, he, you know, he'll say later on in this same sermon, we'll look at this next week, but he, he basically was telling them if they persecuted him, they would certainly persecute his sheep. The disciple is not above his master. I think this is in verse 24. The disciple's not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. He not only stated that his followers were as sheep in the midst of wolves, but he said that he was the one sending them there. He said, behold, I send you forth as wolves. He is 
the good shepherd. Now, we learn about his role as the good shepherd in John chapter 10. Who, have any of you ever heard of a good shepherd actually sending his sheep into the wolf den? That isn't exactly how we would probably identify a good shepherd. A sheep's greatest enemy is, is what? Especially in that part of the world, and in many other places of the world, the sheep's greatest enemy is the wolf. The danger of the wolves is that they sneak in among the sheep, and they kill them. They devour them. They sneak in. A lot of times, wolves will uh, disguise themselves in sheep's clothing. Now, I'm not talking about the real animal here, but uh, we know that there are wolves, men, who do that. Satan himself is disguised as an angel of the light, and he's nothing but a ravening wolf. It's It's not that the sheep go out to the wolves. It's that the wolves sneak into the sheepfold, right? And what is the shepherd's job? The shepherd's job is to protect the sheep from the wolves. But here we have the good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who's sending his sheep into the midst of the wolves, right into the heart of Satan's den, The world into which Christians are sent, remember the Great Commission, we're to go into all the world, the world is a very dangerous place. Being commissioned by Christ assures persecution. Did you know that? It does. So don't ever tell people, you know, become a Christian and everything will be a bed of roses. We need to be upfront and honest with them. That's not true. We'll get more into this in, in the lesson this morning. The world has and will, always will, oppose the gospel. It is not normal for a shepherd to send his sheep out among wolves. That's just not normal. But neither is it consistent with the nature of sheep to voluntarily walk right into the wolves' territory. Sheep are pretty done, dumb, but they don't usually raise their hand and volunteer to go right into the, oh, I'll do it, walk into the, the wolves' den. But this is where the supernatural becomes evident. When sheep are able to fearlessly and confidently obey their good shepherd's command, even though they don't quite understand it, and go into the wolves' den and change the nature of some of those wolves, that's supernatural. And that gains the attention of other men. That gains the attention of the world. When those brave and willing to die for what they believe sheep point to the good shepherd as their source of of their strength and their peace and their, their power, to convert wolves, then he receives the glory. Because everybody says, well, sheep couldn't do that. There's no way. They say, no, I didn't do it. It was the power of the good shepherd, the power of his word in me. Because the the only weapon that the, the, the sheep has is the word, the word of God. It is in the hostile environment of the world of wolves that the sheep of Christ, you see, are needed to serve him. And that is where they have their greatest testimony. The Son of God is able to use, you say, well, why do we have to have persecution? Why do we need to be persecuted? And we're not persecuted nearly as much as so many people. Some of us maybe have a little persecution from family members or whatever, you know, but we haven't seen anything compared to what some people in this world have to encounter and down through history have encountered. But as I said, I believe it's coming more and more um, it's approaching where we will have to, and especially our children and our grandchildren, they're going to live in a persecuted society if things don't change radically here in America. But the Son of God uses the persecution of his saints for several ends. One of them is that he is able to teach us through persecution about God's care for us. God is able to to, um, to protect us. Think about the three lads in the fiery furnace. If that's his will, he is able to protect us even in the midst of the wolf's den and to deliver us when he chooses to do so. 
Secondly, he is able to teach us more about trust so that we mature. And isn't that what he wants us to do in our Christian life? Doesn't he want us to be maturing, to grow, to be growing spiritually and being conformed more and more into his son's image? And third, he is able to take our sufferings and touch the hearts of those who are causing that suffering. He is able to take our sufferings and touch the hearts of our persecutors or those who are reviling us, sometimes even leading them to surrender their lives to Christ. And didn't we see this, for example, in the case of James, the first apostle to die? King Herod arrested him and killed him. And remember I told you the story about how the Roman centurion who had been beating him and treating him so cruelly was so moved by James' compassion that he also accepted Christ? And who else do you think of? I always think of Saul as he watched Stephen being stoned to death. That, I believe, had a big impact on the mind and heart of Saul, who later became Paul, watching Stephen die so bravely and so much at peace and even forgiving those who were, who were killing him. So he uses our sufferings to, to get the attention of our persecutors. And fourth, he is able to deliver us. He is able to deliver us. Now, sometimes he doesn't always deliver his saints from suffering death, but he does deliver them even in death because, you know, only man, man can only kill the body, but he delivers that person one way or another because even if they give up their body, they're instantly with him in heaven. They are delivered one way or another. Something we, we uh, don't often hear enough of in our churches today, our American churches today, sadly, is about counting the cost of discipleship. We don't hear a lot about repenting of sins and humility and great spiritual poverty. Remember the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit. That speaks about our poverty of spirit, understanding that apart from Christ, we are hopeless and helpless. We are spiritually bankrupt. There's no way we can earn our way to heaven. We don't hear a lot about taking up our crosses and following Christ. We don't hear about the dangers of discipleship. We don't hear about its demands and about knowing Christ through the fellowship of his sufferings. Remember Paul said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Oh, that's great. Yes, I'd like to know him, and I'd like to know the power of his resurrection. But how many are willing to say, and the fellowship of his sufferings? Ooh, mm, not so sure about that. Don't take me out of my comfort zone. But we don't hear about a lot about this in our churches today. It is far more appealing to the masses today because it tickles their ears to hear about the breeze and the ease of the Christian life and the health and the wealth, which is used as an enticement to motivate people to turn to Jesus and experience the abundant life, which is too often being defined as having riches. And having uh, the abundant life is so often out there, this prosperity gospel, which is booming in America, it talk, talks about having wealth. If you're spiritual, God is just going to pour the wealth on you, and you will be so blessed. If you just accept Jesus, he promised you the abundant life. So you can have land, you can have riches, you can have job promotions. This just came out while I was studying all this. This is Time Magazine, September 18th. And uh, it, the title of it, I, did I show you this last week? The title of it is, Does God Want You to Be Rich? Meg, many mega churches today are preaching that, yes, God wants us to be rich. There's uh, uh, one, I'm not going to mention any names, but there's one very popular evangelist who uh, is on television. And he is, he's promoting this sort of thing. And a member of his congregation is quoted in the magazine, and this member says that you know he was influenced by this evangelist, this preacher's uh, teaching, 
And so he said uh, he, he started applying his principles to his life, and he said, right now, I'm above average income speaking, you know, speaking of his income. It's a new day God has given me. I'm on my way to a six-figure income. Once that gets rolling, he, he says he plans to buy his dream house with 25 acres and a schoolhouse. His children are homeschooled. And he's going to buy horses and ponies and a horse barn and a pond and some cattle. He says, I'm dreaming big because all of heaven is dreaming big for me. Do you think that God wants everybody who follows him, follows his son, to be wealthy? Are we to measure our self-worth or our spirituality by our net worth, by our pocketbooks? You know, that's exactly what the Sadducees and the Pharisees thought and what they did. But what about the millions of Christians today and in the past who were faithful followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they lived in poverty? What about all those underground Chinese believers today, or those in Sudan, or those in other very third world countries who have nothing but are sold out and would give their lives for the Lord Jesus Christ, but they have nothing? Even though this prosperity theology is appealing to the great masses of people today, yet we find that Jesus, if you really read the scriptures and what Jesus said, he promised persecution, he promised hardship, he promised suffering, and he promised even in some cases death. Oh yes, he said that we would have the abundant life. But he wasn't speaking of physical abundance necessarily. Now, sometimes in America, we're all physically abundant compared to other people. But he wasn't, that wasn't the, the, the primary teaching, is that we're all going to be wealthy. He was speaking of spiritual abundance. He was speaking of our riches in Christ. He was speaking of the, the gifts of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and temperance, and all those things. He was speaking of losing our lives to find them. Jesus is not a means to an end. He is not some kind of a celestial ATM machine. He himself is the end. The prosperity gospel preaches the positive, but not the negative. It soft pedals the consequences of Adam's sin, a fall, which is sin. It de-emphasizes sin. Some of the biggest churches in America today, you can go and buy the author's books and et cetera, et cetera. They're in Walmart. They're in Sam's Club. They're in Costco. Some of those books totally don't mention sin and taking up your cross and denying yourself and pain and suffering. They just say, you know, put Jesus on and you'll have everything. You'll be so blessed. But be careful, be discerning about what you read, because sometimes it's what you don't read that is sending the biggest message. We had our little crusade last night. I was blessed to be able to, to counsel with a young girl, sweet young girl. But I was, I was very careful to tell her, you know, if you want to accept Christ into your life, which she did, I have to tell you, it's not going to always be an ab a bed of roses. There's going to be, you're going to have to take a stand. Your family may not support you in this. We're in a spiritual battle. We're involved in warfare. Satan will not be happy about this. The wolves will not be happy about this. You know, we need to be up front with people. We, we don't need to be. John MacArthur says this in his book. He says, because of false promises... Many unredeemed people remain on the broad road that leads to destruction while being under the delusion that they are on the road to life. Many believers are confirmed in spiritual mediocrity and unfruitfulness, thinking their health and their wealth and their material success is the certain mark of divine approval. Still others believe... Still other believers are disillusioned and embittered because their lives of obedience, their faithfulness, and their sacrifice for Christ have not been material, materially rewarded, end of quote. 
You see, this prosperity gospel, if it tells people that you're spir- if, if you're spiritual, God's going to pour it on. He's going to open up the windows of heaven and you're going to be rich. And you don't get rich, what are you going to be? You're going to be disillusioned. And you might fall away easily and say, well, those promises weren't, surely weren't true. That's the problem with it. It's really bordering, I would say, uh, right on the edge of heresy. We need to be aware of it. Just as Jesus did, so should men of God do today. We should be warning others what to expect when they follow Christ. They should expect that spiritual warfare because it is real. We don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities of powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. We are involved in spiritual warfare, and they should expect the wolves. What do you expect in the world? All W's in the world. Warfare and wolves. And we to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Because he was sending his sheep, out among the wolves, the Lord's first counsel to them is to be, and this is in the end of verse 16, to be wise and harmless. He tells them to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. So his imagery of the appropriate character of a true disciple is given by way of three creatures from nature. Do you think God gave us the, the animal world so as to teach us things about ourselves and about him? I do. I think he teaches us all kinds of things through the animal world, his creative world. Not only the animal world, you know, the plant world, etc. But this is interesting. He teaches us here about, actually in verse 16, he names four animals. Sheep, wolves, serpents, and doves. Isn't that interesting? He's using nature to tell us about uh, the, the character of a true disciple. First of all, should be one, uh, sheep among wolves. That's what we're like. We're sheep being sent out among the wolves. Remember, we're not sent to overpower the wolves physically or to even destroy the wolves. We're not sheep going out. I mean, sheep don't have sharp teeth. They don't have any kind of defensive mechanism at all on their bodies. So we're not out there to destroy the wolves. I think about some other religions that are wolves devouring the sheep. But as Christians, we're sheep going out into the wolves, but we don't devour the wolves. We're to convert them. What a difference. What a big difference. We're not to resort to power or savagery or terrorist bombings in order to convert the world to our religion. How crazy. How can anybody think that's of God? That's the way Satan operates. Anyway, it makes me mad when I think about it. (laughs) Because if if we did that, we'd become just like the wolves ourselves, wouldn't we? Islam. You know, they murder and they kill those who stand in the way of converting the world to Islam and to their false god, Allah. That's their way of convert. Anybody who won't convert deserves to die. That's not of God. Allah is not God. Oh, don't ever, ever think Allah is God, one and the same as our God. Not He is not the God of the Bible. He is the same, one and the same as Satan, small g. And I know that's harsh, but it's true. Wolves destroy. Wolves deceive. Wolves devour. Wolves cause death. We are sheep. But we're sheep who are to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Because we're exposed to a world of evil men, we're to have serpent-like minds. That's, a, that's speaking of a sanctified shrewdness. It's not speaking of a, of a cunning shrewdness, which is how Satan was described the first time we ever read of him. In Genesis chapter 3, it says, Now the serpent was very subtle. It's the same word, but it was cunning. We as as God's sheep are not to be cunning and, you know, deceitful and twisting things and turning things for our advantage like Satan does. We're to have a sanctified shrewdness about us. This means we're to have a keenness regarding our surroundings. Is a snake always on the alert? 
Have you ever watched one? How his little eyes notice everything going on around him? We are to use our God-given common sense uh, and, and to maneuver ourselves cautiously as we go among the wolves. And yet, like a snake, we're to have a planned strategy. As you see a snake slithering, I, have, I live in the woods, so I have lots of snakes in my yard. Every year I always encounter a lot of snakes. I had a big, huge six-foot copperhead at my front door this summer. So I am getting a lot of experience about snakes, but they have a strategy. They, I see them slithering through, through the yard, and I know where they're headed. They're headed down to the peacock cages or to the, to the turkey cages because they love their eggs. They want to get their eggs. But you and I, we're to have a, uh, a strategy, a planned strategy. We're to, be, we're to be quick to sense danger and we're to escape from it when it's po- where, where possible. Know when to strike with our two-edged sword, the word of God. We're to know when to strike and we're to know when to withdraw. We're to have wisdom to do the right thing at the right time, in the right place, and in the right manner with the right people. That's wisdom of of being wise as a snake. And we're also to be what? Harmless as doves. That speaks of being mild and meek. It speaks of power under control. We're not to cause injury. We're not to hurt others. Dove symbolizes what? War? Peace. A dove symbolizes peace. We're not to provoke or to allow ourselves to be provoked. We're to guard against wronging others. We're to be godly, not unethical, and not deceitful. So we are sheep who are a blend of serpent and dove in our character, which is very interesting, isn't it? We are to be a combination of intelligence and innocence. We're to be simple-hearted, but guess what? Not simple-minded simple-hearted, but not simple-minded. In the fact that we confront a hostile world, we do need to be wise. It is wise to understand the unregenerate man's temperament. It's wise to understand the enemy. It's wise to know uh, how they think and to be careful how and when to approach him or her. It's not wise to purposely say inflammatory things and start arguments. It's not wise to go out there with a a placard and say, all ye sinners are going to hell. That's not really the way to, to be like a dove. I know I did that when I first became a Christian. I grabbed everybody by the neck and started choking them, saying, don't you know if you die today, you're going to go straight to hell. Didn't really win a lot of friends and influence people and certainly drove my family away from me. We're not to be abrasive and insulting and to cause turmoil. If we find ourselves in the middle of a confrontation, we should avoid being offensive and using harsh words, but still not be compromising. I'm not saying to be compromising. But we're to be gentle and kind and mild and meek. That, you know, a soft word turns away wrath. The, the balance of truth and love and gentleness must be there. You'll find, as you continue in your Christian life, that everything about the Christian life is so much a balance. A balance of truth with love, gentleness with boldness. It's always to get that balance. And when somebody's off balance... They come across bad. There's a lot of Christians out there who are doing more harm than they are doing good. Now, there's a woman who's written a book, and and I I agree with a lot of what she says. Ann Coulter, she's a Christian, claims to be a Christian. I guess she is a Christian. But she can say some of the harshest things. I don't think that's the way we're supposed to be, saying harsh things about the wolves and the enemy. Being as harmless as uh, as doves means that Christians are not to be running around the world fighting everyone and fighting everything that offends us or threatens us and accusing people by being ugly and being uh, blazonly blatant with them. And then, all right, let's move on. We've covered verse 1, 16. Let's move on to verses 17 and 18 uh, where we are told what the Christian can expect to find in the opposition. He says, uh, 
actually he identifies the wolves. He said he's going to send the sheep out in amongst the wolves, and here he identifies the wolves as being men. He says, but beware of men. So who are the wolves? They're men. The counsel to be as harmless as doves does not mean that we are to be naive and to let the enemy flaunt his evil. To deny the enemy and to make everybody our friend, that's not what I'm saying either. We don't just, you know, look the other way and, and say, oh, you know, kind of the ecumenical thing, well, we're all brothers, the whole world is brothers. And that, to do that, to make the enemy our friend, is to entangle Christianity with the world. And that, we don't want to do that. But we are, we are to be on guard and we are to be perceptive of the enemy, which is men who are really wolves. And many of those men are disguised in sheep's clothing. Remember the Apostle Paul warned the church of the Ephesians that he knew that after his departure, who would come in? Grievous wolves would come into the church. They would enter in and they would not spare the flock. What do you think has happened to the church today? The church Christendom in general today. The wolves, the grievous wolves have crept in, disguised as sheep among the flock and devoured many of them. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, which we looked at last year, he said, beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing and are really, what, ravening wolves. So he... uh, Jesus goes on with his counsel. He did not entice followers with promises of easy conquest. He didn't give them the prosperity theology gospel. Rather, he warned them of trials and of opposition that would come from three primary sources. They all start with R, so they're easy to remember. Religion, rulers, and relatives. Where does the opposition usually come from? For sheep, the church, religion, (laughs) I had to cheat and look, religion, royalty, or rulers, and relatives. So first, in verse 17b, which means the latter half of verse 17, the Lord said, beware of the councils and those who would scourge them in their synagogues. In other words, they were to watch out for the religionists. There is no record that the apostles encountered any of this type of persecution on their first venture. But they surely did, we know, after the Lord's death and ascension into heaven. In fact, we saw last week that they were persecuted and most of them died, the the deaths of martyrs. They, the original apostles and believers down through the church age and on into the tribulation period, which occurs after the rapture of the church, they were not to be surprised, Jesus is saying, to find that organized religion was to be one of their greatest sources of opposition. Even under, uh, when they were under Roman oppression, even when Rome was, had conquered Israel, yet the religious councils of Israel, which was the courts or the Sanhedrin Council of Israel, was permitted to resolve their own internal religious disputes and to scourge their own people. The only thing the Jewish courts could not do was kill, uh, you know, sentence someone to death. That's why it had to be Rome which crucified Christ. But they could scourge their people, and that's why Paul was scourged five times by the Jewish religious system. And that was 39 lashes with a whip. Religionists can be so uh, deceived and diseased (laughs) they can be so deceived as I think of with uh, some of the Islamic extremists today that they think they are doing God a great service by persecuting believers now these fellows who are blowing themselves up really do think they are doing their God a service that they are the saints and we're the devil But they're so, so deceived. And it's really sad when they they enter into the next life, which is instantly, they're still in fire. 
aren't they? And then they know the truth, but then it's too late. They have been so deceived by religion. But th that's what Saul was thinking, too, as, as, as Stephen was being stoned to death. He thought he was serving his God. And many even so-called Christian churches today do this. Many Christian churches today, and I say Christian, do not like to be disturbed when someone comes in and begins to preach or begins to teach about sin or repentance or the reality of hell. Now, I have experienced this myself in, in other churches. They're, un, they're uncomfortable. They're, they're very comfortable with their formalism. They're very comfortable with their traditionalism and with their ritualism, and they don't want to be disturbed. They enjoy their little comfort zone. Churches are often full of people who have not really been born again. So sad, because they got all that knowledge about Jesus up here, but it hasn't moved down to their heart. They haven't received him. That's why I explained to this little 19-year-old girl last night. She said, I know about Jesus. I know, I know. But yet she's addicted to drugs and has all these problems. And I said, the problem is you haven't moved that knowledge down to your heart. He stands at the door and knocks. He knocked. You know, you've got to invite him in. You have to receive him to as many as received him. To them gave you the power to become the sons of men, or the sons of God. Anyway, so they were, our churches are full of unborn-again people. Often they will scorn and they will ridicule and they will drive away and persecute the person of God who tries to upset their apple cart. This personally happened to Frank and I. We were actually asked to leave because we were upsetting the apple cart. Well, in verse 18, Jesus went on to warn his followers to beware of rulers or royalty, you could say. Uh, he warned his followers to beware of rulers um, because oftentimes, again, persecution of believers would and has come from governments. He predicted that they would be brought before governors and kings for whose sake? For their sake? No, for his sake. And here is why we see the wolves are so vicious toward the Lord's people, toward the Lord's sheep. It's not because of the sheep themselves. It's because of their shepherd. It would be for his sake the shepherd's sh sake that his apostles and future disciples would suffer and uh, suffer abuse and persecution. Now, of course, there's one way to avoid this. There is a, a way to avoid being persecuted and suffering for your faith. You, you can be a Christian who just mimics the world. You can be a Christian who remains a secret Christian and doesn't tell anybody about it. And that way you won't suffer persecution because you will not incite the wrath of the wolves. Only when we manifest Christ in our lives do the wolves attack. Because they know that the danger to their own existence comes from the power of the shepherd within the sheep. And this prediction, of course, that persecution would come not only from religion but also from rulers, this did take place with the original apostles. James was killed by King Herod Agrippa I. Peter was arrested by King Agrippa I, but remember he was miraculously released from prison by an angel. The apostle Paul was brought before who? Felix and Festus. And King Agrippa II, you can read about that in Acts chapter 26. And down through the church ages, a ch church age, many true Christians have been brought before the rulers of governments and persecuted for their faith. And this will certainly be true on a massive worldwide scale in the days of the Great Tribulation when the Antichrist will persecute and attempt to kill anyone who will not bow to his image, which he will set up in the temple in Jerusalem. Well, the third counsel of the Lord, remember the first counsel in this section was to be wise as serpents and harmless as, as doves. That's his first counsel. His second counsel was to beware of men. Now his third counsel is, uh, in verse 19, is for his followers when they are brought before those of authority and worldly power not to worry about what to say. They're not to worry about their defense. He says, but when they deliver you up, take no thought. That means don't be anxious. 
how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you when? In that same hour. Right when you need it, in that same hour, what ye shall speak. In a crisis, the answer, the response, the wisdom, and the needed grace and peace and strength would be miraculously given at the very time the sheep needed it. That's his promise here. They would know what to say and what to do when they needed to, when they were in the, you know, some kind of awful persecution state and they were standing before some ruler or some re- religious council. They would know what to say and do because the Holy Spirit would be present to help them in their time of need. It says in verse 20, For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. Notice that he said that God's Spirit would actually be speaking where? In the believer. So we know this speaks of a yet future time from where where this was taking place because the apostles on that first venture out did not yet have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. When did they receive the Holy Spirit? After the Lord's ascension, 50 days after his crucifixion or his resurrection on the day of Pentecost. Before that, they did not have the Holy Spirit living in them. He would come upon them just like in the Old Testament, but he wasn't indwelling them. When a believer is called on to give a defense of himself or herself, of his faith, he or she is often nervous, you can understand that, or apprehensive. Perhaps he doesn't know how to speak. Moses had that problem. He said, but Lord, I don't know how to speak. I stutter. Or perhaps he doesn't know what to say. Now, just think, you know, of a situation where maybe somebody comes to you and asks asks you to give a reason for the hope that is in you. Sometimes, you know, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? But can you imagine how this situation would be compounded if you were standing before those in power who had the authority to behead you for what you said? They would distrust, distrust their own ability to speak. They would feel very incapable. Some of them would be probably so nervous, their knees would be knocking together, and they maybe couldn't, their mouth would be so dry, they couldn't even think of any words to say. They might be just totally overcome with their emotions. They would be nervous, they would be angry perhaps, so full of anger, or scared to death, timid. But Christ promises here in such cases that the believer could trust God for what would be said. Only God, God the Holy Spirit, knows the hearts of the persecutors and any others who are present. And therefore, he alone would know what needs to be said to touch their hearts or to serve as a witness against them in the future. Who do you think gave the words to Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael as they stood in the fiery furnace? Or right before they were thrown in and King Nebuchadnezzar came to them, why didn't you bow before my image? And I love it. They said, oh, king, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. You know, our God is able to deliver us. And even if he doesn't deliver us, so what? (laughs) To you. Who gave them those words? God, the Holy Spirit. And he did the same thing with Moses and Daniel and and, uh, Joseph and others as they stood before very, very mighty men and gave testimony for God. Such opportunities for witness are some of the greatest opportunities that a Christian can have. There's no greater testimony for Christ than a believer standing up for him in the face of persecution and even uh, potential death. Well, we're out of time. And so let me just quickly, 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 let's see. Verse 21, he speaks about the third source of persecution, and this is the hardest of all, I believe. The hardest persecution, the one that hurts the most, is when it comes from who? Family, relatives. Oh, doesn't it hurt? It hurts so bad. It says in Micah 7, 6, a man's enemies will be the members of his household. And so often, like this young girl last night, she's the only one in her family who is now a believer. I was the first one in my family. It's not easy. It's not easy easy to be rejected by an unbelieving husband who doesn't understand or by unbelieving children who scorn you and ridicule you. It's not easy to have parents who tell you you're wasting your life. 
It, that is not easy. But Jesus never did promise the ease and breeze gospel. He said that he came to bring not peace necessarily, but division. And the gospel, light divides the darkness. It causes division. So he counseled about that. Um, fifth counsel was to endure to the end. He wasn't saying that those that endure to the end are saved. That Please don't think that, that, that he is saying there that if you do not endure to the end, that you lose your salvation. That is not at all what he's saying. That's at the bottom of verse 22, and I want to make sure I get this across before we close. Other, in other words, what he really is saying is it's a promise of perseverance to the one who truly is saved. The one who truly, genuinely is saved will do what? They will endure to the end. Didn't we see that last week with Peter, how he died upside down? Andrew, how he died on a cross like this? Thaddeus, who was bludgeoned to death, all the apostles in the various ways they died, did they recant their faith? No, they endured to the end. That proves they truly were saved. And these words will have very special significance to the, tri the tribulation saints, those people who will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ during the great tribulation when the, they're hated by the whole world and many of them will be in hiding, going from one city to another, trying to outrun the enemy. He says, you know, if you endure to the end, you will be saved. They will actually, if they endure to the end physically, they will be carried, ushered right into the millennial kingdom in their human bodies. They will be saved. But if they endure to the end and are martyred, they still will be saved because they'll live in the millennial kingdom in their glorified body. So one way or the other, they'll be delivered. And that's what he's speaking about there when he says, uh, endure to the end until the Son of Man comes. He goes all the way to the end in, the, in these few verses, the whole of church history, all the way to the end. And I am sorry I always run out of time, but that's just me. Got too much to say and too much to share. But thank you again for your patience. Let's pray. Father, may we prove our faith by being overcomers of this world. And we're only overcomers when we are in you because you are the one who has overcome this world. Help us to prove our faith by being overcomers of the, of the wolves in this world, which are only able um, to destroy the body but not the soul. And may we, Father, also prove our faith by being endurers. May we endure our afflictions and our tribulations and our trials for the cause of Christ with patience. May we do so with patience and with wisdom as serpents and, and with uh, the peace and harmlessness of doves. May we be his good soldiers and, and may we use every opposition as an opportunity to witness for you because we are under obligation. Lord Jesus, we love you. Help us to serve you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength this week and come back safely next week. For we do pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.